0: Lord Frith, I know you've looked after us well, and it's wrong to ask even more of you, but my people are in terrible danger, so I would like to make a bargain with you, my life in return for theirs.
1: There is not a day or night, but a doe offers her life for her kittens, or some honest captain of Ausla his life for his chief. But there is no bargain. What is, is what must be.
0: Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Roland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers.
0: We are at episode 172, back to Cole's Choice. What are we talking about today, Lord Frith?
1: We are talking about the amazing Watership Down from 1978. Directed by Martin Rosen and based on Richard Adams's 1972 novel of the same name, it's only the third animated film that we've covered on the show so far as a regular episode, and it includes the voice talents of John Hurt, Richard Briers, Harry Andrews, Simon Cadell, Nigel Hawthorne, Roy Kinnear, Ralph Richardson, Denham Elliott, and is the last screen work of Lantern favorite Zero Mostel.
0: Hey, did you ever watch Good Neighbors on PBS?
1: No, not that I recall.
0: Richard Briers was in that, and he is so funny. I've always loved that guy.
1: Well, this is an adventure story that follows a small group of rabbits as they react to the apocalyptic vision of one of their younger members, and they escape the destruction of their warren and seek a place to establish their new home.
0: Hey, can I also add another voice talent to the list? Our favorite narrator is Michael Hordern. We love him and Whistle and I'll Come to You. And for me, at least, I loved him as the voice of the older Dr. Watson in Young Sherlock Holmes. And, by the way, he was in A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, with Zero Mostel.
1: Yeah, I can't believe I didn't mention him right there at the opening, actually. He has a decades-long career of impeccable work for stage, film, and television. And when I say decades, I mean 60 years. And just his legacy of voice work is enough to enshrine him as one of the UK's most beloved performers. This, the Paddington series, The Wind in the Willows, he's arguably the best Gandalf that's ever been recorded. And you're absolutely right. He is in one of our favorite BBC ghost stories for Christmas.
0: Now, I felt like I came into the film with a little bit of a disadvantage because I never read the book. Did you?
1: Yes, I saw the film first as a young person and then I read the book a few years later, but it's been a while. From what I remember, it does stay fairly true to the novel, the differences mainly being that it was somewhat simplified and streamlined for the purpose of film logic. The book itself contains a few more of those pastoral episodes to provide a little better balance and more humor to offset some of the grimness.
0: Well, I was at work today, so I decided to do a little bit of sleuthing. And, curiously enough, because we will come back to this theme a couple of times, the book is shelved in adult general fiction. The film is in the junior DVD section, though. And if I think back to when I was a kid and I first heard of the film, definitely— I don't think that the book would have necessarily been in the shelves that I perused, and I just haven't gone back to it as an adult. But do you think I should give it a try?
1: Oh, without a doubt. It's one of the great adventure stories of our lifetime.
0: Okay, well, geez, I better put it on hold.
1: Well, let's just get right into the film. Let's talk about this opening. It begins with a creation story about the rabbits as we will come to know them and it's this beautiful artwork that contains a lot of indigenous or aboriginal elements in the designs. It has the timelessness that all great mythology has, that fairy tales have, and right away it establishes some pretty high stakes. I don't know that it gets much higher than this. All the world will be your enemy. It doesn't get much more dire than that. But there's a caveat. First, they must catch you. Now this intro, it's so different in style and tone from the rest of the film, but I feel like it's just indispensable. Do you remember your reaction to this introduction and the style the first time you watched it?
0: I just went with it because I hadn't seen it until I got into middle age when you showed it to me. So I didn't know what to expect at all. And the animation throughout and including in the beginning is just so exceptional. It's incredibly beautiful to behold. And like you said, it's a creation story. So my first thought went to Africa. Africa is the cradle of civilization. So it's only fitting that we would be seeing the children of Frith and learning about how they came to be.
1: Well, this part of the film is most often acknowledged to be the work of John Hubley. He was originally slated to direct this, but he left the project due to artistic differences with Rosen, who was only the producer at the time, but then took over as director, Sadly, Hubley died shortly after, but he left an incredible legacy of animation. He did a lot of work for Disney, including being the art director for Bambi. He did the Rite of Spring section of Fantasia. He created Mr. Magoo. And then he also did a lot more experimental stuff and ended up on the Hollywood blacklist during the McCarthy era. So he didn't get to work as much as he rightfully should have. And it's a shame, I think, that he and Rosen didn't see eye to eye, because I would have loved to see his entire treatment of this story.
0: I mean, wouldn't that be such a great supplemental materials feature with the Criterion edition of this?
1: Yeah, even if we just had the most bare bones or storyboards, I would love to see what he had in mind for this.
0: Well, we're just coming off of Seven Samurai, and we talked a lot in that episode about the idea of archetypes. Now here, we definitely have archetypes and this collective journey. And I really enjoy looking at the similarities that we, of course, didn't think of when we were planning the year out. I mean, we've got the unlikely hero, we have division and appeasement perpetrated by the other warrens that we saw in villagers in Seven Samurai, and I think kind of most interestingly, After the group sets off and Violet, who is the only female in the group, she is taken, then there are only seven travelers.
1: We don't often get to talk about this stuff except in our usual Jack-o'-lantern episode or maybe our year-end Ants-in-the-Pants episode, but I love it when these juxtapositions show us something that we didn't expect. And both of these stories, Seven Samurai and this, are so rich, this in particular I feel like is part of a universal tradition of epic adventure stories that deal with just eternal themes, liberation and self-determination. At one point, Hazel describes it as, my friends and I live as we please. And then there's exile, survival, the hero's journey that you're talking about.
0: And the perpetuation of the species, even.
1: Yeah, it has a fair amount in common with ancient stories going all the way back to the Aeneid. When Virgil first told this story, it was already a thousand years old.
0: Did somebody pipe up in the audience, heard it?
1: Classics majors, maybe. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: One of the most obvious connections there is Fiverr, the seer of the group. He's a bit of a Cassandra character. He is blessed slash cursed with the gift of premonition. He's the one that's confronted with this vision of the meadow covered with encroaching blood. So he suggests something completely impractical. We have to leave our comfortable home. But the rabbits must have been reading their classics too, I guess, because some of them at least go. Imagine how much better off Troy would have been if only they had listened to Cassandra. Don't take that horse. So we have a bit of a quest, but with more of a sense of knowing your destination without having been there yet. There is a land of plenty. They know, they feel it. There is milk and honey out there somewhere. So it has something in common, not just with Epic classics, but also with immigration stories of all kinds.
0: A sense of hope? A sense of belonging in a new way?
1: Yes, all that. Both the sacrifices you make when you leave the comfort of home, and the relief and joy when you make it, when you succeed in that quest. That feeling that just fills you completely when you're in the place you know you belong. They phrase it here, when they get to the top of Watership Down, you can see the whole world. That's exactly what it feels like. Now, this fable section that we talked about, it sets us up to believe that it's the rabbits against the world. But, you alluded to this slightly already, one of the most intriguing parts of the story to me is that it's not all external threat. Some of the greatest danger comes from the denizens of your own warren. This deals with issues of authority, the struggle for resources.
0: The appeasement, like I was talking about, the degradation that has taken place in some of these areas. I mean, it is an incredibly important lesson, and it's something that Martin Rosen mentions as well as he reflected back on the film. He said that that's part of nature. Nature is very tough, and Richard Adams was very strong on that element. I felt it was absolutely critical to include it. So there ain't no free clover.
1: No, and I think he and Adams are both absolutely right about that. Now, one of the crew that takes on these travels, Bigwig, He left the Owsla, which is the enforcement arm of rabbit society. When he first offered his services, did you suspect treachery? Was there some skullduggery afoot, maybe you thought?
0: I wasn't sure about treachery, but I assumed that he would try to take over somehow. That there may be sort of that, the king is dead, long live the king. That now's my chance to lord it over somebody else. But it doesn't go that way.
1: Well, we're not wrong to be suspicious of the Owsla, because we come to learn as they travel that it's sometimes life or death, or at least maiming, if you cross the Ausla. One of the captains stumbles upon their initial escape attempt, and Hazel flatly tells him, go now, or we will kill you. They don't sugarcoat it. Now, following this introductory fable section, we have the transition to the much more pastoral style of animation that we'll see for the majority of the rest of the movie, and it's just as stunning to me. The blues and blacks of the nighttime meeting that they have are just Beautiful. It's filled in every corner with these lovely watercolor touches. And then, one of my favorite signatures of the design are all these flowers that are often in the foreground. It gives so much depth and detail to every shot.
0: I have to say, and I do not specifically recommend this, but the second time I watched this film for the podcast, I did it on my iPad and I swear I could see every single brushstroke. It was glorious. And I love that transition that takes place. I think it's reflecting on the evolution of the species, the passage of time, and then also the diaspora that has taken place, and now the new journey that the animals are undertaking. Hey, can I do a mention of a couple of the animators right now?
1: Sure, absolutely.
0: So a little bit more about a couple of these folks that I think it's really interesting to read about what they did. There's Ralph Ayers and... This was his last contribution in this film to old-style animation, because he came of age in the post-war British animation era, and he was a key figure in that period. He had joined Walt Disney's former director, David Hand, at the Gaumont British Animation Studio, and he produced the Animal Land series of cartoons, which I've never seen, but I've seen the artwork for, and he worked on Animal Farm back in 1954. One more mention, Tony Guy, he also did The Plague Dogs, Richard Adams' Mm, other work.
1: A much more disturbing follow-up, I think.
0: I haven't seen that one. It sounds like you have.
1: Yeah, I think it's even harder to watch than this.
0: Did you read the book for that one as well? That one
1: I have not read. Okay. But it's funny that you bring it back to animals and how we feel about that treatment. I lived in a small town and later a mostly rural area growing up. So wildlife was something I was used to seeing and being around. Animals and their behavior was something that was pretty commonplace to us. We also had nature shows on all the time as kids of the 70s, and I think that familiarity might have made this easier to process and understand as a kid. Predator-prey interaction was not surprising to those of us watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom right before the wonderful world of Disney every Sunday night.
0: I feel like I had the complete... Opposite background (laughs) because I remember some of that, but I don't really recall having a true sense of animals in my world because we had cats for most of my life, but typically we would just have one, and no one else I knew or was around had more animals. My grandparents even lived out in the country, they never had pets. So I wasn't out there hanging out with goats or rabbits or horses or anything like that. It seemed so removed from my life.
1: Well, it makes me wonder now about the way that television is structured and marketed and presented. It's so different now that I don't know if it's the same for kids anymore. I know there are channels or even entire networks that are specifically devoted to that sort of nature programming so they can get it if they want it. But would it be something as a child that you regularly encounter as you're watching cartoons or variety shows or other things? Because I really like the cross-pollination that we had with our family entertainment.
0: I think it actually surprisingly is. And that's only based on going to friends' houses who have little kids and just sort of watching things that are in the background. It does seem pretty animal-centric still.
1: I guess from working in the library, I know bugs and dinosaurs never go out of style.
0: Oh, heck yeah. Well, I started to think about that question just a little bit more because something really struck me when Hazel meets Clover and those farm rabbits that live in the pens, they don't really have a need to move. They're comfortable.
1: Yeah, I'm 50-50 on that. If it's comfort or if it's also the fact that that instinct for freedom has been bred out of them somehow.
0: So then, if you think about those specific rabbits and where they are, are they kept for slaughter eventually or as pets? Do either of those things make sense? Or are we just basically selfish? Are you seeing man's selfish instinct to keep something?
1: I don't think it's anything so benign as just keeping them. I think it's definitely for food. Because you don't keep pets pinned up in cages. And obviously you can't just let them loose because they will burrow their way out of wherever you keep them outdoors. So I think it's saying something much more sinister about their ultimate fate in the hands of these men. Which leads me to this, too. In addition to the folklore and analysis of social structure, there's an ecological message as well. The encroachment of humans is the main danger that they face. Automobiles, guns, snares, land development. The rabbits say... They'll never rest until they've destroyed the earth. Now, if there's a part of the film that might be a little bit too on the nose for me, it's when they deliver that message so plainly. But it's just a minor criticism I have. Sometimes you work in broad strokes when you're making work geared toward children. So I can't entirely fault them for that.
0: Also, it was a different time. And I think at that point, we were beginning to talk more about the scourge of development. It was getting to be very poignant, and it is certainly very poignant now. I mean, that tractor and plow noise, that stuff is terrifying. And also, I have to say, didn't we learn anything from Manchester Morgue? (laughs) I mean, you're sending electrical impulses into the ground. Maybe there's radiation. We're going to create zombies or zombie rabbits. It's going to be biniculas everywhere.
1: Well, I'm glad you bring it back to binicula, because it is actually fairly balanced in depicting the dangers, because we spend even more time navigating the pitfalls of the natural world. Hawks, rats, owls, cats. He was not kidding about the whole world being your enemy.
0: Yeah, they're pretty low down on the food chain, so there are a whole lot of larger predators looking for them.
1: What does a rabbit have to do to get a good night's sleep, basically? And I like the subtle implications in that question that the ecological message lacks. I think it's a much larger metaphor for how we live constantly in the shadow of death, there's that bittersweet truth that comes with birth. From the moment we're born, we're dying. That's built into the philosophy of the book, and it would have been a huge mistake, I feel like, to dilute that to make a more family-friendly film, and yet somehow they still manage to foreground that idea without it being ham-handed or forced.
0: Or cynical, which I think is very important too. And I'm going to go back to Martin Rosen for a second. He said that he was talking to the censors in Sweden who were having a lot of problems with specifically that theme. And he said, Is there something about death you don't want children to know about? It's going to happen to us all. I do have to say though, I want to get your opinion on this. Even though I'm the depressive one generally... I don't know that I feel like I live constantly in the shadow of death. Even with the pandemic, am I just being a weird Pollyanna?
1: No, I don't think so. It's not something that I sit around and dwell on either. It's just kind of an innate knowledge that we carry all the time. And actually, in my case, I think knowing that and feeling that makes me enjoy life more. The idea that nothing is guaranteed makes me appreciate what is happening right now more.
0: I guess kind of going back to our scene, what is, is what must be.
1: And before we get too heavy with all this, fortunately, not everything out there is an adversary. The gull, Kia, is a great bit of comic relief and a really nice lesson also in the value of kindness creating unlikely allies.
0: Okay, normally I want to steer clear of comic relief because it's usually neither comical nor a relief, but... You got Zero Mostel in this. He is pretty dang great. And maybe I was more poised for that relationship because all I do is watch the Dodo or YouTube and look for unlikely animal friendship videos.
1: I love Zero Mostel so much. Never let it be said that that man hid his light under a bushel. He gave such outsized performances, both in person and as a voice actor. But they also had such great heart every time. Here's a perfect example. It's a very short sequence, but when Keogh is able to fly again, it gives me such a sense of joy and also a feeling of what an incredible sensation that must be, even though it's not a particularly showy scene. And at least some of that is based on Zero Mostel and his delivery of that exuberance when he is able to take off again.
0: And I will say also again, without cynicism, even though he does say piss off.
1: That dirty bird.
0: Totally. I think it's important to remind everybody that this isn't relishing the darkness. This isn't glorifying the violence. The stakes, as you mentioned earlier, are very real.
1: And as it happens with the best kids material, we learn a lot of lessons. And one of my favorites being that fortune favors the bold. An epic quest requires... Bravery, even recklessness, which we see with the taunting of the farm cat, for instance. Now, some of that is strategy. Some of it, like you already made reference to, is just driven by biology. But when they finally reach that hilltop that will be their new home, Hazel is still dissatisfied. There is something missing. And that's the fact that there are no does left. As Keogh puts it, you stupid bunnies, you got no mates. So the drive to continue the species is so strong that they will undertake incredible risks to do so. And then on top of all of that, Fiverr is the most brave when the situation most demands it. When Hazel is shot and he runs to his aid. I love the symbolism in that sequence and the way it moves from one image to the next. The wounded rabbit tumbling in a circle, then surrounded by a wreath of leaves, then the sun... Everything is circular. Everything contributes to this cycle of life and death.
0: Going back to that super cool mandala in the opening sequence. And you know recklessness is speaking my language because I tend to jump without necessarily thinking ahead because I generally feel like I'm going to land on my feet. And I appreciate here the idea that staying still is death.
1: Now, one of the most disturbing sequences, to get back to the heaviness...
0: I'm sorry, can I interrupt you for a second? Because I just had a thought. The thing that bothers me the most about one of the managers I have is the dithering. It's the, okay, I got to sit on this idea for a second and then make a decision. No, just buy the little set of kids' acoustical instruments for our acoustic jam. It's going to be great. I'm sorry. Diatribe, over.
1: I don't know how many people out there work in the library like we do, but here's a little peek behind the scenes. You come up with a great idea. Plural you. Universal you. You take it to the library personnel, the management, even further up the chain, let's say district manager, or even director. Here is the inevitable library response. Every single time. We love that. That's a great idea. But let's wait a little bit on pulling the trigger on that one. Classic library move.
0: It is. Sorry, I just had to put that in there to express my rage.
1: What are you, Stevie Janowski over there? Probably. Well, like I was saying, one of the most disturbing sequences to me is when they come across Captain Holly again, and he confirms Fiverr's premonition. The warren that they escaped from was gassed by men, by the land developers, and the sight of those rabbits in that flashback, desperate to escape, piling on top of each other, unable to breathe, it conjures up horrors ranging from everything to deadly nightclub fires to the Holocaust, in my mind, I don't know about you.
0: Yeah, it's pretty grim. I don't mean to overstate it.
1: You're afraid to overstate it, but I just name-checked the Holocaust.
0: Oh, you did. But I'm not backtracking from that because it is terrifying. And it's, of course, not an isolated incident.
1: No, not at all. And in this case, it serves as a grim reminder that human presence is never very far away and it's always dangerous. In the artwork, I love the fact that it constantly reflects this coexistence. It doesn't shy away from that idea either. The natural is frequently divided by the man-made. For every flower, there are fences, barbed wire, roads, railroad tracks, power lines, radio towers. Again, though, there's room for nuance because, ironically, a boat, a product of human ingenuity and labor, is crucial to their salvation.
0: Yeah, they got those little rabbit engineers paws.
1: Well, let's talk about the music a little bit. I love it. How about you?
0: I do too, but I do have a little bit of a but to throw in there. Okay. Do you want to do the pre-but or the after the butt first?
1: Do the pre. Do it in order.
0: Okay. So personally, I was not familiar with Mike Bat, who wrote the beautiful Bright Eyes theme sung by Art Garfunkel. But he was clearly a huge name in the UK and Europe and Australia even. He did work with Colin Blunston of the Zombies, and you and I have a special connection to the Zombies. Did you know he also co-wrote the title song, Phantom of the Opera?
1: No, I didn't know that. Yeah,
0: pretty amazing. I got one more special tidbit just for you. Okay. 2018, he produced and arranged Hawkwind's album, <laughs> The Road to Utopia. thought you would like that. So that's all the pre-butts. Tell me more about how much you love this music.
1: Oh, it's beautiful. All these flutes and oboes. It contributes to what I recognize now as the very English feel of the movie, which is something that I couldn't necessarily have articulated when I was young, but I definitely felt that. And I love Bright Eyes, too. Art Garfunkel's contribution to this soundtrack, that sets this above even what it already was. I always thought Paul Simon was a twerp, and Garfunkel was where it was at anyway. (laughs) Okay. What about your post-butt?
0: Okay, so my post-butt, outside of the flutes like you mentioned and that song, there's some of the score that I find to be kind of at odds with the tone, and I'm still trying to work out why, but what first comes to mind is that there's this repeated theme that happens, and it sounds more akin to this kind of jazzy brass music that I associate with PBS of the early 80s, Tommy and Tuppence. Lord Peter Whimsy. It feels very period and very specific. I knew that music so well as a kid. Did you notice that or experience no, that? I
1: don't have those same touchstones either, though. I was not a huge consumer of mystery beyond the super cool Edward Gorey opening sequence.
0: Very true. I don't know if it's just me mistaking and not having the musical vocabulary or... If it's maybe for sections that suggest the man-made portion of this world, not sure. I would have to keep watching it. And next time we watch it together, I'm going to point out to you what okay. I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I'll be curious to see what makes you feel that way. Well, after all these trials and travails, eventually, they help some does escape from another warren commanded by the fearsome General Wound warrant.
0: Okay, one of the scariest characters and characterizations I've seen.
1: It's funny that you mentioned this earlier. I always felt like this section of the story owed a little debt to George Orwell. This feels like it sits right at the intersection of 1984 and Animal Farm. So the general comes to Watership Down with a warning and to negotiate with Hazel. Hazel isn't buying what the general is selling. But interestingly, I think he is more concerned, Hazel is, with negotiating with Lord Frith. Hazel, in the opening scene that we did, he offers his life for the protection of the Warren, and this is one of my absolute favorite aspects of this film. Lord Frith explains to him, it doesn't work that way. He makes it clear that this bargain is offered every day. Now, the thing that's most striking and memorable to me about how all that plays out is how Frith denies the request and underlines how utterly commonplace it is without sacrificing benevolence. It's just matter-of-fact, and other similar requests that have much more merit or significance may still be denied in similar circumstances. It makes me think a lot about the way a lot of people interact with their chosen deity. And ultimately, I like here that it doesn't feel fraught with religion. There's folklore, but I feel like that's an entirely separate and less corruptible thing.
0: Or at least kind of that Anglican sense of religion in terms of we have free will. But I was really most surprised by the concept of the black rabbit as it's first introduced, especially in the field of blood that Fiverr sees. It seems so terrifying, but mostly personal to me, more like a villain and not like the evolution of a concept.
1: I'm glad that you bring up the Anglican tradition, because the thing that I set this against, it's not like Tolkien's adventures, for instance
0: which you have way more experience, at least with the source material, Mm -hmm. than
1: I do. Those feel very much rooted in the Judeo-Christian tradition. This feels older and broader. It still has its appeal, and you can find relatable moments whether you're secular or not, but I feel more like that's because it's a good story that's open to interpretation. Now, going back a little farther, we talked about the roots of this going back as far as antiquity in those epics, But I love that it includes elements of fairy tales too, and certain details belong to another tradition of one of the oldest reasons we tell stories, to frighten children into behaving themselves.
0: It's true.
1: One of my absolute favorite details is that General Woundwart is elevated to boogeyman status by the time this is all over. It seems like a perfect legacy for a character like that, one that should be feared for his cruelty, but respected for his fearlessness. When he met that dog on the battlefield, he leapt forward to meet fate, whatever that may be.
0: And we don't know what the fate was, so he goes into legendary status and then becomes part of the story the doe telling her kittens many years later.
1: And speaking of fairy tales, we do actually get our happily ever after. Their enemies vanquished. The Warren enters a period of peace and prosperity unlike any they had known Before, Until one day, a more elderly Hazel hears that old familiar voice of the Black Rabbit. He's lived to a ripe old age and has seen and done more than many rabbits ever will. But when he breathes his final breath and you can see his physical body yield, it gets me every time.
0: Oh, for sure. The sound, the breath, the end. But I talked a moment ago about how I first thought of the Black Rabbit, but that's not the way the Black Rabbit comes for Hazel, even though he's voiced by Joss Ackland, who is one of the most terrifying villains around, he comes more like an old friend.
1: Exactly as he should, and that's exactly what it felt like to me, too. So as we're headed this direction, let's talk about this idea that you often hear repeated in relation to this movie that this is an experience that is too traumatizing for children. Now, the British Board of Film Classification, it gave this a U certificate upon release. That's the equivalent of a G rating in the United States. And as a result, a representative says that they have received complaints about the appropriateness of that rating literally every year since 1978.
0: Ain't people got anything better to do?
1: I'm perfectly fine with that rating. And then in the U.S. it was rated PG because of the violence depicted. But I don't necessarily disagree with that either, because that just means parental guidance is suggested, which should absolutely be part of this process. Talk to your kids about these ideas. Help them navigate them by all means. Even in the opening credits of this, we see how close we keep the dead when they show a glimpse of a church and it has its own attached graveyard, just as a matter of course. Aren't kids going to ask the same questions of this movie that visiting a church like that would inspire every Sunday? Parental guidance should be a given. Now, I know that's not the case for everyone. But how do you feel about these ratings in general? Wait, let me guess. Is this going to be a patented Erica half of one half of the other?
0: No, this is going to be me, unfortunately, going off on another diatribe (laughs) about what's happening right now, today, in our community and a lot of communities with banning books but first, let me take a winding road to get there. So, that universal rating. The board said, although the film may move children emotionally during the film's duration, it could not seriously trouble them once the spell of the story was broken. Which is incredibly stupid, in my opinion. As if you forget those things the second that you walk out the door? I never have. I personally feel that crying and big emotions are cathartic, and I want to have those conversations. I still want to have them. So, unfortunately, we're seeing this parental guidance thing taken in different directions today, especially in the library worlds that both you and I work in. People are continuing to try to ban, police, destroy, even burn material they find objectionable for young people, not just they're young people, but everyone's young people. I personally would never have gone for any of that garbage when I was a kid, trying to tell me what I could or could not read. Hell no. And also, does that mean that these people don't understand that some of us have cousins or schoolyard pals who are going to be willing to tell us anything, whether they have the facts or not? But I cannot keep talking about ratings or banning books, or I will have an aneurysm.
1: Well, we don't want that. So, let me take over for a second here. What it comes down to, for me, is that I just heartily disagree with the word traumatizing. To me, this is the discussion equivalent of someone saying something like, don't talk to me before I've had my coffee. If you ask that person, hold on, stop, do you really believe that? Do you mean that dumb thing you just said? And you make them confront it, they would have to admit that no, they don't actually believe it. They've just heard it so much that they've come to understand that this is just a thing you say. Well, I don't have time for that. It's like when people say the big sleep is confusing and convoluted. No, it's not. Stop repeating that. Now, you found an interesting Richard Adams quote about this. What did he have to say?
0: So he didn't see any reason why he should A, apologize for writing what he wrote, or B, decide who should see it or not. He said, I never consider the reader's. I was allowed to read anything I liked when I was little, and I liked all sorts of things that I shouldn't have been reading, which I don't have a problem with.
1: I like that, but I want to take it even further than what he said. I would say that there's no such thing as something that I shouldn't be reading or watching. Only things that need discussion afterward to process and contextualize. I was not every kid though, obviously, but I disagree with that knee-jerk response to this work every time I hear it. Now I've mentioned this before, but... I'll tell you why I'll repeat this why it was so important to me and why I chose it for the show and why I come back to it So often this was the first time in my young life of really having to look at the idea that I don't go on Forever that none of this does
0: and would you say that you saw it roughly when it came out?
1: Yeah I think I was about nine the first time I saw it and that's valuable even then it was valuable it's humbling the only thing Right off hand that I can think to compare it to is what I've heard people say about having children. That you quickly come to realize that there are different priorities now. And there's never a bad age to learn the lesson that, hey, this whole thing is not about just you. There are obvious times that I don't do as well when it comes to acknowledging that lesson. But it's one of, if not the single most important thing the movie's ever taught me.
0: Okay, well, speaking of, I don't know that I actually disagree with you but i have a little bit more to talk about okay. here so first i want to talk about the word traumatizing so it means subject to lasting shock as a result of an emotionally disturbing experience or physical injury okay so let's put a pin in that for just a second
1: webster's dictionary defines traumatizing it does yes.
0: i literally have quotes around the definitions i copied into my notes okay now I already said, I never saw this as a kid, so I don't think it was being kept from me, per se, by my parents. I did on my own, though, discover Charlotte's Web on afternoon TV when I was very small, and I do think I was forever changed. For that same reason that you mentioned, I discovered, oh, not only do I not go on forever, but the things I love don't go on forever? And unfortunately, I also discovered the end of Born Free, which I watched at my neighbor's house before getting on the school bus for some dumb reason. (laughs) And I was a mess. I couldn't stop crying. So would you say then, because I carried those experiences with me, because those were the first times that I really felt death personally, because I was so invested in the story, were those films or were they not traumatizing by that definition? Does the outcome matter here? And by that, because I didn't feel like my growth was stunted, for example, I don't feel like I have post-traumatic stress disorder because of it, quite the opposite, that the experiences were less traumatizing.
1: I like the word you used earlier, cathartic. I think that's a much better choice than the word traumatizing.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: And I think if we go back to your dictionary definition here, what I am fixing on is the shock part of it. For that trauma to continue, for it to be traumatizing, I feel like the shock has to continue, which it doesn't.
0: I think you're totally on the money. And there was a study at the University of Buffalo in 2017 that underscores that
1: idea. I think cathartic versus traumatizing is a good choice and an important distinction.
0: So with that study, they were talking about whether death on the screen is or is not a healthy way to start discussions on difficult subjects. And they said... It doesn't do any lasting damage. Like you mentioned, that trauma does not continue. The shock does not continue. And the study author said these are important conversations to have with children because waiting until the end of life is way too late. And think about what we have now with something so beautiful like Coco, for example. I don't think the kids who watch that are going to forget it, but I think it inspires these great conversations.
1: I love Coco as an example. That is probably the most joyous examination of death I've seen in a children's film ever.
0: And so many other kinds of transitions in that story, too.
1: Now, how would you distinguish the difference that you feel between seeing this for the first time as an adult versus how you imagine the experience would have been as a child or those other similar experiences you had?
0: You know, I can't really reflect on how I would have felt about it as a kid, but I think if we start talking about ratings again as an idea, now it's something that I don't think about. So I don't go into the film with these prejudgments about something's going to be horrible or so wonderful or whatever. I think I can accept it on its own terms. But I am still just as susceptible as I ever was to whatever happens in the story the second that I fall into it. But I would say, going back to my childhood, it does reaffirm the conviction I've always had that there's always something out to get you. As we said, all the world will be your enemy. I mean, I've spoken about this on the show before. I learned very early on from Darth Vader and J.R. Ewing that people are out to get you. So I guess I'm less worried about the constant shadow of death and more about ruination and losing my oil business, maybe.
1: Well, that seems to me like a major difference between viewing it as a child and as an adult. There's a cynicism in that worldview that I would have guessed you might not have felt as strongly as a younger person, but you're saying you did.
0: I sure did. I knew the score back then (laughs) because I was allowed to watch anything I wanted to. I think I was just paying attention. If you are watching Star Wars or Dallas and you are not getting those vibes, I think you are really just in your own world.
1: Well, let's talk about more things that you've watched. Let's talk about specifically your journey With animation, when we met and then later started the show, it wasn't something that you'd spent a lot of time with, feature-length animation anyway. How have your feelings about it or your approach to it changed over the last few years?
0: And in fact, I would say it was something that I generally avoided, actually. And I was ruminating on that quite a lot today. And I think that the big idea that I had, and I don't think I'm alone in this one, is that Animation equals kids. And so if you're looking at these motion picture standards and practice boards, you look at all those complaints that we were talking about, how the film and its content were characterized. The underlying unsaid implication is that because the film is animated, it has to be judged by audience standards for children. So instead of accepting that it's a violent film because this is a violent world, and rating it accordingly, the violence gets demonized. It becomes something that you're supposed to be afraid of. And so I think I was just susceptible to that idea that these stories told in animation weren't necessarily ones that would appeal to me. And clearly, thankfully, with you, I've been proven wrong time and time again.
1: Well, I've never been so glad for you to be so wrong. I'm actually really happy that you have discovered that there are wonders out there for kids and adults. And that's basically the last word on this. It's majestic and everyone should see it young, old, or in between. So how about you give us a recommendation to go out on?
0: Well, this was kind of a gimme. I'm going to go back to the title I mentioned earlier because it made such an indelible impression on me as a very young person. And that is Charlotte's Web from 1973, directed by Charles A. Nichols and Iwao Takamoto with voice work from Debbie Reynolds, Henry Gibson, Agnes Moorhead, Pamela Ferdin, and Paul Lind, just to name a few. It's also based on a book that I have not read, and that was the one by E.B. White, because I didn't actually read a ton of kids' books when I was a kid. It's about farm pig Wilbur, who is terrified that he will end up as dinner, and the delightful spider Charlotte, who comes to his rescue by weaving words into her web To convince the farmer that Wilbur is too special to kill. He's some pig, after all. But all life does eventually come to an end, and it's the glorious Charlotte who teaches us that lesson. Now, from what I remember, and I could be wrong because I haven't seen it in a long, long time, the animation isn't necessarily transcendent like it is in this film, so it's all about the story and the emotion here. How about you?
1: I'm going to recommend Pink Floyd, The Wall, from 1982.
0: Which I also haven't seen.
1: It's directed by one of my all-time favorites, Alan Parker, and it stars Bob Geldof and Bob Hoskins and prominently features the music of Pink Floyd. And this might not be the most obvious choice to connect to this at first glance, but I see them as kind of equivalent rites of passage.
0: Also, maybe kind of the dystopian, British sort of tone to it.
1: Definitely. I think Watership Down should be required for kindergartners the same way this should be required when you move into your freshman dorm. Like you say, it's very English. It has its share of disturbing animation, darkness, and violence. The connection here for me is that they are both designed to be galvanizing to us at a very specific age. One at age 9, one at age 19. They are guiding us over very specific thresholds, and those are the ages at which I saw them, respectively. And I distinctly remember having similar feelings once all was said and done when trying to process each of them immediately afterward. So there's your double feature for the evening, Watership Down and Pink Floyd The Wall.
0: Very good. And also there's a funny Bob Geldof story about that. I'm going to send everybody to look it up.
1: The taxi story?
0: No, this is about how he went into the recording studio for some of the music.
1: Well, let me tell you the taxi story then. Okay. He is on this taxi ride talking about how he doesn't want to do this. He hates this idea. It turns out that taxi driver is Roger Waters' brother. And he went immediately back to him and told him the whole thing.
0: And Roger Waters, I think, holds some grudges, maybe.
1: I think so. But it turns out that he was actually very fond of what Geldof did with the role.
0: Well, the other story, the music story, it's a funny one on purpose. So everybody go check that one out. But once again, that's two great recommendations. Charlotte's Web and Pink Floyd, The Wall.
1: And that brings us to the end of episode 172. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We've also added a simple donation button to the website, so if Patreon isn't your thing and you'd rather just make a one-time PayPal donation to help keep the lantern lit, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header. And that's in the main drop-down menu if you are on a mobile device. We appreciate everyone's support so much. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Keith Rich, Spencer Seams, Dale Haustman, Ross Waldorf, and David Parker. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Thank you very much to the nice anonymous person that left us a new five-star rating on iTunes. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material at the website, magiclanternpodcast.com.
0: And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast.